to us in your word. It reveals you to us. It helps us see the God that you are. Helps us to see what you are up to. You help us to see in your word our place and your grand design. You help us to understand, Lord, what we are here on this earth for and how we might live our lives here in such a way that they will last for all eternity. Thank you. Might you open your word to us, even as we receive from you the blessings that are in it. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hopefully you've kept your Bible open there to Genesis chapter 24. Two years ago, well, no, I guess it's, excuse me, three years ago, almost, uh, we had the joy of marrying off two sons in the same year. Um, and so it made for quite, a, quite an exciting year of uh, going through engagements and then uh, wedding preparations. And leading up to all of that, there's, there's an unspoken question that, uh, that invariably sort of goes through a parent's mind, you know, uh, you know, who are, who are worthy brides for my sons? And if you've married off a child, the thought probably has gone through your mind similar to that. However, it's really not a fair question. Um, because as I, as I was thinking about that, uh, it, it really is, quite honestly, a, a question that in some part is rooted in parental pride. And since it's rooted in pride, it really is a wrong question. The the issue is not who is worthy of marrying my sons, but the question is who has the Lord brought into their lives? What has the Lord done? How has the Lord orchestrated circumstances of life and and their situations? That's... That's the relevant question. The the, the greater question is not whether, as a parent, I approve. The question is, does God approve? Is God in this? Is God at work? Despite what we hear, marriage is a sacred covenant ordained by God. And it is ordained by God for his eternal purposes. God has a reason. He has something that he's after in marriage. And marriage, therefore, must be treated and approached as such for its sacredness in the sight of God and its purpose before God. The the world is not going to understand that. I, I get that. But the church must The church must. Now, if there was ever a father who could ask, who is worthy of marrying my son, it was Abraham. 
Uh, I mean, who could marry this, this son, Isaac? He, he's, he's a miraculous son of promise. I mean, this is the son that was conceived in, in Abraham and Sarah's old age when Sarah was beyond the, the, the physical capability of conceiving children. God opened her womb and allowed her to conceive and bear a son at 90 years of age. This is the son of that, of that miraculous work of God. This was the, the son of promise. So who, who's worthy of, of marrying this son of promise? Not only that, he is the, he's the heir of, of Abraham. And, and Abraham, as we see in the story that is unfolded for us in the scriptures, is a man who was uniquely blessed of the Lord in the great plan of what God is doing. Abraham has a unique role to fulfill. Blessed of the Lord. And thus, this chapter opens up there in verse 1. Abraham was old and well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. In all things. So, who, who gets to have Abraham for a father-in-law? Not only that, Isaac is the heir to the fortunes of Abraham. And at this point in his life, as you, as you would look at Abraham and his household, uh, as those who lived in that land would look at Abraham's household, they would see something is going on here beyond Abraham. There is, there is the blessing of his God upon this household as his household grows and expands. And, and Isaac is going to be the sole heir of that. And, and also, you know, who's going to be the successor to Sarah as the matriarch of, of this family of divine promise? These are all relevant questions. Who's worthy of, uh, of marrying my son? You talk about expectations. <laughs> Who's a bride worthy of, of Isaac? Y- you better believe that, uh, you know, in that day and time, you'd have fathers and tribal chieftains lining up their daughters. I mean, I was thinking about it. It's kind of an ancient episode of The, of the Bachelor. <laughs> I've never watched it. Never will. Not interested. Not interested. Who's worthy of, of marrying Isaac? Who's a worthy bride? Well, here's the answer to that question. It's the bride that God chooses. That's who's worthy. God will settle that question. He'll take care of that. And he'll bring a bride of his choosing. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 24. It's interesting, we didn't read the whole chapter, but, but God, in chapter 24, God doesn't directly speak. God, God does not directly say a word. He's quoted, he's quoted, but God does not directly speak. And as you read down through chapter 24, there really is nothing supernatural or miraculous that happens in this story. And yet, very clearly, God is the one who is involved and God is the one who's doing the choosing. For example, in verse 7, Abraham assures his servant, he says to his servant, God, God is going to send his angel before you to give you direction. 
in verse 12, the servant asks God, would you, would you help me in this? And ask God to give him success. In verse 14, we're told that, the, that Abraham's servant is seeking the one whom God has appointed. And later in verse 27, the later testifies that the Lord, the, the, the servant testifies that the Lord is the one who has led me. Again, in verse 48, again, the servant says that the Lord led me in the way of truth. The Lord led me by the right way. And four times throughout this chapter, God is described as prospering this endeavor. That word prospering, it means God brought about the successful accomplishment of this task. So you're not going to hear in verse 24, God himself speak a direct word. You're not going to see God perform some amazing, outstanding miracle. But God is at work, and God is doing, and brings about what happens in Genesis chapter 24. Now, in the redemptive story of the Bible, which that is, if you will, as we go from Genesis to to Revelation, we're reading reading about God's great story for redemption. As you read that story, the worthiness of this bride for Isaac is a legitimate issue. Because this is not, Isaac is not just any son. Okay, there's... He's not, he's not like you know, one of, of, of many. He's unique. He is the one and the only son of promise born to Abraham and Sarah. And as we come to the story, we see that Abraham, Abraham's old, we're told. He's been widowed for three years now in the story of his life. And his 40-year-old son is still a bachelor. It's crucial that a bride be secured for his son, that the blessing might be passed on from Abraham to the next generation. This passing of this blessing and this succession in the line of Abraham is crucial to the storyline of the Bible. Not only that, we we know that, that whatever happens in chapter 24 must be important because, in all honesty, chapter 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis comes about in the middle of the book. It's the longest chapter. And in our, in our English division, divided down into, into 67 verses, it, it takes twice as much territory for God to tell the story of Isaac getting a bride than it did for him to tell how he created the heavens and the earth. He does that in like 30 verses. It takes 67 verses to talk about how Isaac gets a bride. I was, I was really thinking about that. I thought, man, of, of all the things that you could be talking about and, and sharing, why would, why would so much space be devoted to, to this story? Well, part of, the, part of the reason it's so long is because a big portion of the story is told two times. I mean, in, in rather, in rather a, a bit of detail, which, which is puzzling, why, why, would, why would it happen and, and why couldn't they just say, and, and, you know, what happened in verses 28, that's what happened, and, and go on with the story. No, no, we get to verse 28, we start in verse 29, and we're going to go through this whole sequence of retelling everything that just happened in verses 1 through 28. Interesting. So what's that all about? Well, I want us to look at, at just how this story unfolds, because I really, as I've read it and looked at it again, I really believe there's help 
for those of us who sincerely seek to to walk by faith, which is really what Abraham's journey is all about. And as we come into chapter 24, as he is securing a bride for his son Isaac, Abraham continues this, this journey of faith. And I think there are some, some things that we see happening in here that help us. They certainly are present in the text. And I would, I would sum it up in, in, in three words. I think there's three key words that, that we see happening in chapter 24 that, that, that can help us as we think through making our own way through, through life, this, this journey of faith. All who follow Abraham and his faith are going to journey by faith. Those three words are simply this. There's promise, there's prayer, and there's providence. Okay, Promise, prayer, and providence. We, we find those in this story. First of all, first of all, there is a promise that's made. The, the whole story of Abraham is rooted in God's covenant promise to him. The Lord blessed Abraham in all things. Why? Because God made a covenant with Abraham. And part of that covenant was he was going to bless Abraham. And then through Abraham, he's going to bless the world. This blessing of the Lord and upon his life in this covenant, it accounts for his longevity, which is noted in verse 1. It accounts for his prosperity. You'll find, you'll find verses throughout, sprinkled throughout verse 10 and 22 and 30 and 34 and 53, which just give us glimpses of the prosperity of Abraham. God did, God did abundantly bless Abraham and his household. Abraham was a wealthy man, not because Abraham sought to acquire wealth, but under that time in that ancient world, even under under this covenant which we are leading into here in the Old Testament, there was very much a material aspect to the blessing of God. That's not that's not necessarily true these days. You, you, you don't measure the blessing of God. You really don't measure the bless, blessing of God by how much you have in your bank. I mean, d- does it come from God? Yes. And you don't measure the blessing of God necessarily by, by size of house and acquisition of all kinds of, uh, of things. God can certainly do any of that. If you will, the, the true sense of the blessing of God is, is more than that. But, but with, with Abraham, there's a, there is very much a material aspect to this. And as you looked at Abraham's life and you saw, you saw what he was accumulating, even those that did not know the Lord. They recognize Abraham's God is at work. Well, well why, why does Abraham have this prosperity? It is part of the covenant blessing of God to him. It's why Abraham left his homeland and why he came to the new land of Canaan. That's brought up in verse 7. It's why he has a son named Isaac keeps coming up throughout this chapter. Why does he have this son? Because of, of God's covenant promise to Abraham. And so the future of this covenant now rests upon Isaac. We're told that in verse 36. Abraham has secured a piece of land there in Canaan for his posterity back in chapter 23. And now he must secure a bride for his heir in order to have posterity. So there is, there is undergirding this whole thing, the, the promise that God made to, to Abraham, this covenant that God is going to keep to Abraham. But also this story is rooted in a sacred promise that Abraham had his servant make. Read about that in those opening, those opening verses. He calls his servant, and, he, and he, he calls his servant to make a sacred oath. 
And the oath was this, that that as he sent him out to search for a bride, the bride could not be from Canaan. The bride could not be a Canaanite, but rather must come from Abraham's relatives, must come from Abraham's family, the family that he had left back in Mesopotamia. And under no condition, absolutely no condition, was Isaac ever, ever to go back to Abraham's homeland. Promise that that will never happen. Because the future of Abraham's descendants depended on this. The future of what God was going to do to bless the world through Abraham was dependent on keeping this promise. The bride for Isaac could not be a Canaanite. This is not an ethnic family pride thing going on here. It is a spiritual thing here in Genesis chapter 24. Canaanites were under God's curse. You go back to Genesis 9 and you'll read about that. If you will, specifically, Canaan, who was the son of Ham, Canaan and his descendants cursed by God for shameful behavior relative to Noah. God pronounced a curse upon them. Not only that, they were notoriously evil and were told in Scripture that they were storing up the judgment of God. And in fact, Moses, who is writing Genesis, he's writing it on the eve when Israel is about to come into the land of Canaan and begin to execute the judgment of God upon them. The son of promise, Isaac, could not become one of them and risk having his heart turned away and risk the promised seed. Amazing, in the mercy of God, you get to the book of Joshua and a Canaanite enters the line of the Messiah. Just a little reminder. (laughs) There's really no one beyond the reaches of God's grace and God's mercy and God's salvation. But for Isaac, no. For Isaac, no Canaanite wife because this matter of offspring is so important. Not a Canaanite. Not, we might put it this way, not an unbeliever. Interesting, generations later, it was Paul who was writing to Christians in Corinth. And it's Paul who gave the warning that they were to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. An admonition, really, that is, that is rooted in, in what God wants for his people. And, and why is that? Paul goes on and says, listen, there is, there is spiritual incompatibility that, that ignores the essence of covenantal marriage before God. And in this matter of, of not being unequally yoked with an unbeliever, it's not a matter of fleshly superiority. It's not a matter of, of, of them inferior, us superior. It's not a matter of, of better than. It's not a matter of holier than thou. It's a covenantal issue between the believer and God. Canaanites, unbelievers, are not worthy, not because a believer is inherently worthy, but because of God's design and God's intent for marriage. God still has a design and an intent for marriage. And there is a godly spiritual intent that God has for marriage. When it comes to marriage, he's looking for for more than just simply give you a companion through life. God has spiritual things he wants to do in your life as a married person. God has, God has, has plans for, for spiritual offspring. 
Malachi talks about that. He, ha- he has plans for, for husband and wife, parents, to raise up a next generation of, of godly followers of Jesus Christ, whether they be biological children, foster children, adopted children, grandchildren. God has, God has a big picture of what he's after. Marriage is, 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 an, is an integral part of that. And so thus, even, even there, you know, we, we catch a glimpse of that as Isaac talks to serving, not a Canaanite woman, because God, God has designs and he has intents for raising up godly offspring for his purposes and for his glory. I, I would just say to, to you, young people, those contemplating marriage or, or parents as you think to the future uh, of marriage for, for, for your own children, you need to determine now what's important. What's important to you when it comes to that? I'll tell you what's not important. What's not important is not the promise of of a spouse who's going to have a lucrative career. It's not not important that, that that you find a spouse for your child who promises to never take your child and grandchildren far away, but keep them close by. It's not a criteria to look for that person who's good looking with great personality. Rather, I would suggest these three questions because these are, these are things I've put before the Lord. Is this person a believer? Have they confessed Jesus Christ as their Savior? And I actually go to a, a, another statement. And do they evidence true love for God? Do they evidence true love for God? I, I've met people that confess Christ as Savior that just don't seem to evidence much thrill with God at all. And, and I, I actually put this third one before the, before the Lord. Do they take God seriously? I would desire in my life and desire for my children, if it's God's will that they marry, that's up to him. If they marry a believer who evidences true love for God and who take God seriously. Do you believe that God can bring that kind of person to you if it's his will that you marry? Parents, do you believe that God can bring that kind of person to your child if it's his will that they marry? I've had the opportunity to be down in chapel a couple times at Cedarville, and one of the things I've heard Dr. White say repeatedly to the students there, because you get to college and you can start looking for that marriage partner, and he exhorts the students, instead of looking for the right person, be the right person, and then see what God does. So there's a promise. There's a promise that, that, that lies behind what's going on here in, in God's direction and in this, in this life of faith, if you will, living out and, and making decisions and, and actions that are in accord with the promise that's been made. So that's a dynamic that is flowing through. The second word, prayer, there is a prayer that is prayed. There's a prayer that's prayed, and we heard it in the scripture reading this morning. The servant is, is dispatched, and what's interesting, he makes, he makes the 500-mile journey to Abraham's homeland in one verse. <laughs> and then, and then all, the thing, all of a sudden, things slow down, because to tell us what happened in one day takes 50 verses. Tells you a little bit here of the emphasis. As he makes the trek northward and he comes to Abraham's homeland and there to the city, 
of Nahor. Notice as we read through, there, there's two things that are, that are joined together here in, in this encounter, uh, starting there at verse 10. The two things that are joined together are a prayer and a plan. A prayer and a plan. In fact, the plan is expressed as a prayer to God. And the fulfillment of the plan becomes worship to God. So this servant arrives, and you know, and, and so now what? Here, here he is. He's, 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 you know, he's made it to the to the general destination. You know, it's sort of like I, I've learned. If you want to learn how to putt decently in golf, you got a long putt. Don't try to get it in the hole. You know, make the hole about about the size of a garbage can lid, and try to get your ball into the garbage can lid, and then you know. So so, but it still doesn't get in the hole, right? So if you will, uh, the the servant has gotten he's gotten in the vicinity, but now what? How does he sink the putt into the hole? How does he identify this person? It's evening, and we're told it's the time when women go out to draw water. So, so it's not going to be a situation where, where just one woman is going to show up all by herself. This is going to be a time when, when, when the women from the, from, the, from, the, uh, from the encampment or from the village or from the town, they're all going to be coming out to get water. So how is he supposed to know which one? We're not told in the text that God whispers her name in his ear. We're not told in the text that God puts a halo around her. We're not told in the text that as she came out, there was this sunbeam that suddenly shone down upon her and followed her as she went to the well and got the water. None of that happened. If you will, nothing miraculous happens and and so and so the servant is there and he's surveying the situation and and he and he has a plan and he and he presents it as a prayer says lord i'm gonna i'm gonna ask for a drink of water nothing unusual about that i mean he's a traveler and his 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 caravan has just arrived and 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 they've been they've traveled a long distance and so yes they're in need of of water and and he says and 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 so i'm gonna ask and and if she provides, if whoever I ask this of, if she provides and then offers to water my camels, let that be the indication that she's the one. What's the big deal here? You ever watered, anyone ever watered camels? I haven't either. <laughs> I, I'm told and I've read that to water 10 camels, that's the equivalent of drawing about 250 gallons of water. And most likely, the watering pot she had held about three gallons. So we're talking about making more than 80 trips from the well to the watering trough, which would be no small feat, and this is no insignificant offer. Why would this be the sign? Why, why would this be the indicator? I've thought about that. You know, I, I read commentators, and they, and, and they speculate, you know, what the servant was looking for. Well, what they were looking for is they're looking for a woman of good stock, you know. So we want to find someone who's respectable. We want to find someone who's a hard worker. And we want to find someone who's, who, who's strong. This, this is, this is going to be a wife that's worthy of, of Isaac. And I would say, no, 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 I think we're, I think we're missing the point if we think that this is like a like the beauty pageant, she's going to parade before, and he's going to start checking off boxes, you know, of of you know of the kind of wife that's just going to bring forth the best children for Abraham. That's not that's not what's happening. You see, this servant knew his master better than anybody. This servant was trusted by Abraham. This servant is running his household. He is he is chief of staff, chief of operations. 
Everything is entrusted to his, to his care. This servant knew what Abraham would look for. If Abraham himself was there, you know, surveying the situation, this, Abraham, this servant knew what Abraham would look for. And so what he does is, is he prays, and he prays his plan, and then Rebekah shows up, and, and she goes about her task. And then what does he do? Well, verse 21, And the man, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know. The, uh, the, the, the man gazed at her in silence. What's he doing? He's watching closely. He, he's observing. And you know what he sees as he watches her? What he sees, what he observes, reminds him of Abraham. She's like Abraham. <laughs> she, she, she's like Abraham and Sarah. Uh, and and, and the parallels are significant. We're told in verse 16, she was beautiful. Specifically. Well, so was, well, so was Sarah back in chapter 12 and verse 14. And the, the, the Sarah factor is important. It's evidenced in, in verse 67 that, that this woman, she's going to come, this wife, she's going to come, and she's going she's to fill that role. And, 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 and so, so Rebecca, you know, the, the language reminds us of Sarah. And then we read about all this flurry of activity. I mean, it's no small thing as she's making 80 trips back and forth to the well and the watering trough. And, 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 uh, and it says that she ran and she did it quickly. And if you will, uh, the servant's request for a drink of water. Can I have a little bit of water? Results in 250 gallons of water being hauled for camels. Hmm, where did I read something about that? Back in Genesis 18. When, when the two angels and, and the Lord appeared to, to Abraham's tent. And, and Abraham welcomes them in. And he says, can I, get you, can I get you a little piece of bread? And what does he do? He prepares a feast. And, and what does he do in Genesis 18? Oh, he's running here. Quickly do this. Quickly do that. Quickly do the other thing. The writer, Moses here, wants us to see Re- Rebecca. Rebecca's like Abraham. She's like Abraham. He, he, he's reminded that he's seeing, if you will, in one sense, his master in, in operation. And then in the end of the story, like Abraham, Rebekah is given a call to leave her homeland and her kindred and to journey to this new and far country. And what does she do? She obeys immediately. She obeys like Abraham did. She's like her great uncle Abraham. The servant perceives that. This is the one. This is the one. And so here's the servant. He's, he prays to God. And his prayer is a plan. His plan flows out of the promise that God had made to Abraham. His plan flows out of the promise that he had made to Abraham. It flows out of the prayer that he made for guidance. There are some who are good at planning, but they don't pray. There may be others who pray, but they don't plan. The servant prays, and he plans as he prays, and then he just steps back and he observes what's happening, looking for what God is going to do. He's acting by faith in God's promise. He's carrying out his oath to Abraham. He's praying for God to help. He's observing what is going on all around him, and all of this worked together to open his eyes to see what God was doing. Which leads to that third key word. It's the word providence. 
providence is displayed. And that's actually the, the theme uh, that the servant rehearses. You know, so we I said, we've, you know, we, the story is told to us, and then we go through all these verses, and the story is retold to us. Well, why is the story retold to us? Well, his purpose in retelling is for Rebecca's family, and then for later readers like us to see that God is in this. God is the one who led. God is the one who prospered. God is the one who did it. This is the providence of God. When we talk about the providence of God, what we mean by that is that God is making all the events of the physical and the moral universe fulfill his design. Providence is the way that God is directing the universe. It's the way he is moving it forward according to his plan. And it also means that God looks after the details of a person's life. Everything is under God's oversight. Everything. Author Jerry Bridges said this. He said, whether person, family, tribe, or nation, God alone determines whether we will accomplish what we have planned. That's the providence of God. And the providence of God really is why prayer is effective. The degree to which we believe that is probably proportional to our prayer lives. The providence of God. Related, as you might tell, to the word provide, you go back a few chapters, Genesis 22, in the story of Abraham offering Isaac. Perhaps you'll remember uh, there was a question that Isaac put, put to his dad as they were making their way to the hill of sacrifice. He says, hey, hey dad, hey, dad, we, we've got fire and we've got wood. Where's the sacrificial lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. In other words, God will see to that. God will see to that. Sort of the literal idea of that word providence, to see to it. He will take care of it. God has spoken, and he will see to it that what he has spoken comes to pass. Sometimes he does that in big, bold ways. We see it in the Bible when he's there on Mount Sinai, and there's thunder and lightning. And the mountain is shaking. And the voice of God is scaring everyone out of, out of, their, out of their wits. He, he splits open a Red Sea, so I wonder which way we're supposed to go. Well, how about through the Red Sea? Sometimes he does it in big, bold ways, but more often than not, he does it silently and invisibly. Make no mistake, God's hand is involved in human events. Whether or not you like what's going on, God's hand is involved in everything that's going on. Oh, does that mean I blame him for all the bad stuff? No. No. God's involved. You realize, do you realize that God could, could bring about some bad stuff to shape us up? He is involved in the affairs of this, of this world. He is involved, uh, involved in human events. The providence of God tells us there's no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as fate. There is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as coincidence. Providence points to a purpose. Providence means God has a destination in view. Providence is like the rudder of a ship. You don't see the rudder, but it's pointing the ship to port. God's at work. He is at work whether or not you sense it, whether or not you see it. He is at work. I wonder if I pause, you know, uh, for, for a moment, and let you, let you think, because I, I really think sometimes it requires us to think, to quiet ourselves and think. Could you give testimony to God's providence in your life recently? 
Have you seen God at work? Have you seen him at work in your life? Has you, have you seen him at work in, 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 in a situation around you? Have, have you paused long enough to think about what's going on, the things that are upon you, the burdens you may be facing? Have you paused to think about that? Maybe you're wondering, you know, how, how, would, I, how would I see it? How, how, would, I, how would I know? <laughs> how, would I, how, how would I see the, the providential hand of God and, and, and know that? Well, let me just give you a couple things real quick because I think the servant shows us. I think, number one, believe what God has said. Believe what God has said. How can you perceive what God is doing if you don't even know what he said? How, how can you think to perceive what God is doing if you don't know what he's promised to do? How would you know that he's blessed you if you don't even know what his blessing is? So believe what God has said. Number two, talk with God about that. Talk with God about it. Okay, God, I, I, know, that, I know that this is what you want for my life, and I know that, not because I made it up, because you say it in your word. This is what you want me to seek. This is what you want me to do. Lord, I need your help. I I need your help. I've got this decision to make. I need your help. And and then have a plan to participate in what God is doing and then pursue what God wants. It's not wrong to have plans, but those plans should be formed by what God has said and your sense of dependence on him to do what he said doesn't make our plans infallible. If you caught it in Genesis 24, Abraham gave the servant an out. In case she won't come with you, you'll be released. Okay? doesn't make our plans infallible. But Abraham knows that God will be faithful. The servant knows that God will be faithful. See, prayer is what opens our eyes to see God's providence. And you won't see God at work if you're not seeking him. You won't see God at work if you're not talking to him. I think we see in the text that prayers and plans rooted in God's promises will enable you to see God's providence. You'll be able to see God at work. If your heart is fixed on God, your ears will hear things that others don't hear. Your eyes will see things that others don't see in big and small ways. You may see it in in that note that you get in the mail. You may hear it in that phone call. You may sense it in that chance encounter that you have. That unexpected gift that arrives, that surprise visit, that near tragedy, that human need, that person who enters your life. What's God doing? Well, if you're, if you're not communing with him, if you don't know him, you're not tied in, you won't, you, won't, you won't have a clue. His providence. So a worthy bride has been found for the heir. The marriage arrangements are made, and she returns to become Isaac's wife. God's keeping his promise. And in answer to prayer and trust in him the providence of god advances his amazing plan for redemption that's what's happening here listen to the blessing that rebecca's family pronounced upon her as she departed in verse 60 they said oh sister may you become the mother of thousands of 10,000 sounds like what god promised to abraham and then and may your descendants literally and may your seed possess the gates of those who hate them May your seed be victorious over your enemies. 
Where have I heard that before? The seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. May there be victory. The story of the Bible is a story that takes us from rebellion to redemption to reconciliation. God has promised to redeem lost sinners. He has a plan to do that. And make no mistake, it will be accomplished. His providence moves it forward every day. His providence moves it forward from Abraham and Sarah now to Isaac and Rebekah. It will go to, to Jacob, through Leah, to Judah, to David, until Jesus arrives, of whom the writer of Hebrews says, he is the appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, the son of Abraham, the descendant of Isaac, is the redeemer, the heir of all things. But there's more. But there's more. (laughs) Because God's plan calls for a bride, for that son too. That son, Jesus Christ. A bride is being secured for the ultimate son of promise, Jesus Christ. And this story anticipates that. Jesus said to his, con- his contemporaries, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it. He saw it. He was glad. And so the son of promise, Isaac, secured a bride through whom the promise will be fulfilled. And the son of promise, Jesus Christ, is preparing a bride for himself, a worthy bride. Not by anything in the bride, but by the work of Jesus Christ bringing us into that inheritance. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, made worthy in Christ. For this reason, what reason? That we just read. For this reason, A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. One day, Jesus is going to come for his beautiful bride, his glorious church, made ready and worthy through his shed blood. May we be ready for that day. Help us, Father, I pray. Help us to be ready for your son, heir of all things, who has provided for our salvation, who has redeemed us by his blood, who is preparing his church, who is preparing his bride to be a glorious church, a beautiful bride, fit for a glorious Savior Jesus Christ. As we walk this journey by faith, that's the destination. That's where you're steering us. May we trust you in that, Lord. May we lift our, our, our eyes higher than what we see. To see what you're doing every day. Every day. By faith, Lord God, I pray that there would not be a person here 
who has not accepted your invitation to be part of his bride through faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. Lord, today, may we be those who act according to your promise as we pray, as we plan for each day to do your will, that our eyes might be opened to see and our ears might be opened to hear what you are doing and what you are inviting us into until Jesus comes. Glorify yourself through your people, through your church, through your bride. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. His name, amen. We're going to sing as we...